see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Welcome to another episode of Discovering, the only science show on National Community Radio with a crunchy shell and a chewy centre. This week, Tim Baines puts the fun back in fungus, and in a discovery first, Gina Satori doesn't have an opinion about something. Completely out of character for us, though, up next, we're dispensing with the weekly science news to ask, what isn't an animal, isn't a plant, and can taste damn fine in your scrambled eggs? If you answered fungus, you're in for a treat. I remember in one of my early high school science classes, the teacher was talking about the classification of living things on this planet. She said there was the kingdom of animals and the kingdom of plants, and I thought this was all pretty easy to understand because I had a good idea of what an animal and a plant looked like. Then the teacher kind of shuffled her feet coyly and said, and then there are fungi. My mind reeled at the thought that there could be a whole separate kingdom dedicated solely to these little spongy umbrella-shaped oddballs when I could think of gazillions of different types of animals and plants. To really understand this apparently glaring oversight, I guess you'd have to talk to someone who loves fungi, an expert like Dr. Virginia Shepherd from the University of New South Wales. How long have you been studying fungus? Um, well, I should say, uh... I've had a long-standing love affair with what used to be called the lower organisms, uh, probably since I was about 10 years old. What got you started at the at age of 10 into, into fungus and the lower organisms? Well, I think it actually started with um, it actually started for me with a kind of what you might call a higher organi higher organism uh, called an ostracod, uh, which is a kind of little crustacean that lives in ponds. And um, my brother and I collected some tadpoles, and I noticed these little specks swimming in the water, and it just went on from there. So I realised there's a world inside this one, and it's more weird and strange than any surrealist could have ever imagined so uh, and then presumably someone gave you a microscope and it, it, yes, it was I all over I, I begged for a microscope my father got me a microscope um, and of course the ostracods were a bit big to look at under the microscope so I then got into much smaller things um, the protozoa and uh, I've built on that uh, to get into fungi and predominantly algae I think are my favorite favorite beasts uh, algae okay so Where's the fun in fungi? Where's the, the fun the in fungi? Or the algae you study? Well, you'd say the fun in fungi, imagine a world without them. Uh, we would have no beer, no Vegemite. Uh, no beer! <laughs> there would be uh, piles of feces as tall as buildings all around us and uh, you wouldn't be able to see them for all the logs of fallen trees that nothing could have decayed. So, yes, they they play a, a vital role. This, this is the importance of fungi. This is, this is why they're and important. The, and then there's nasty fungi as well, I imagine. There's, there's the uh, the fungus that ate my face, yes, uh, they're, they're a fungi that... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, yeah. they can see the human body as a, as a food source and a surface to break down and uh, feed upon. And uh. 
Oh, well, okay, so what's some fabulous fungus? Uh, Sorry, to be a, a fabulous fungus. This is one anybody can probably find for themselves. You just need a few pieces of uh, wallaby dung or uh, cow poo or horse droppings, which have come from animals not in a stable, so eating grass outside. And you can um, uh, people have probably even seen these. If you look at a piece of wallaby dung out in the bush and it's got like a white fur on the surface you've probably seen this particular fungus. So you look at it closer up, it's called pilobolus, which means a hat tosser. Uh, and what you see is a, a transparent stalk with a nice swollen vesicle on top of that, and on top of that what looks like a little beret, a little black beret which contains the, the spores, hat. <laughs> the, the hat. And this is a remarkable thing. The swollen, uh, the swollen vesicle acts as a, as a lens, and underneath that, there's a little collar, a little yellow collar, uh, which has got carotenoid pigments that can catch waves of light. And the light is focused onto this collar by the uh, vesicle acting like a lens. And the effect of this is that the little polobolus bends towards the light to the point when the vesicle is actually shadowing the pigment and it bends no more. It can build up uh, a massive pressure. It builds up a massive pressure inside itself, uh, mainly by having uh, sugars. So it's got a lot of sugars uh, mm -hmm. inside this vesicle yeah. and the, the little stalk. And uh, when that explodes, it finally explodes after it's bent to its uh, fullest extent. Usually around noon. I mean, it, it follows a oh, specific cycle. It doesn't take cycle. a long time. It just is it a matter of hours. It does this. Uh, it, it takes a little while. Overnight, you can get the. Uh, yeah, but it's not like a month where it builds up and does it. This no, thing grows. you can grow it on a piece of toilet paper yourself. Uh, mm. The wallaby dung on that, bit of moisture and a light coming from one direction. So, so what happens to the hat? What happens? Tell me about the hat. Well, this okay. thing builds up this incredible pressure inside. The vesicle then uh, explodes, and the hat is tossed. The hat containing the spores of the fungus. Uh, is tossed um, up to two meters, which is a long, long way for such a tiny thing to be tossed. Yeah. And it actually can uh, shoot a cow, so <laughs> <laughs> it can uh, pepper a cow with spores. But the main idea is that the uh, the spores will then um, hit some blades of grass. They've got a, a, a sticky mucilage goo on the surface. They stick to the grass, and another cow, wallaby, horse, herbivore um, eats the grass. The spore it's, is resistant to being digested. It comes out in the next load of uh, poo, and the whole cycle starts again.
poo-loving, hat-popping fungus. Yeah, got it. <laughs> you could say a coprophagus, uh, a, a poo-eating, uh, many fungi <laughs> like to live on and uh, eat poo, and uh, thank heavens that they do. Tell me, okay, this is what's confused me from an early age, what is it about a fungus that makes it not an animal, not a plant, that something special that we have to, I mean, apart from the wonderful properties these organisms have, is what's the essence of it that, you know, in the cells or, or what is it that well, makes it not why, like why is it any other animal uh, or plant? It has its own kingdom, uh, the, yeah. the mycota. Um, well, there's, well, they have actually in the past uh, been poetically described as animals trapped in tubes. Uh, <laughs> But they are quite different to animals. They're completely unlike plants, uh, although they're usually studied uh, by people who are doing uh, botany and things like that. Um, they're completely unlike plants. Uh, they have no chloroplasts, so they can't photosynthesize. They can't make their own food. Uh, they have to basically get it from their environment by eating uh, things which have already made that food. Um, but I think, uh, well, they, they live in uh, the tubes they live in. Uh, are made of chitin, which is the same stuff that uh, lobsters' claws are made of. a fabulous bit of material you find all over the place, isn't it? Indestructible, practically, yes. Is that the same thing as fingernails, or have I got that wrong? No, uh, no, that's a, this keratin. Keratin. Uh, yeah. Hey, I could get that wrong easily. They do sound alike, but uh, no, uh, arthropods and uh, you know, insects and things will make their shell out of uh, chitin, and so do the fungi. Um, and they form what is called hyphae, they're not really considered to be true cells in that sense. So they form these long tip-growing tubular structures, very, very tiny, I might say, uh, maybe five to ten microns across, uh, which is if you took a human hair and chopped it into a, maybe a hundred bits. You know, we're talking very thin, very small, and they grow uh, only at the tips. So they have their own uh, older parts of themselves are left behind as they keep growing. So kind of like a, a tree. I mean, this is or that's yes, left in behind a way, uh, inwards. The xylem and phloem of trees are that. Also, the roots and shoots also have a kind of tip growth. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, the fungus. What else makes it special? Well, I guess if we talk about ourselves as animals, we have. A fixed number of chromosomes. We are a diploid organism. Uh, we have two sets of chromosomes: one from mum, one from dad. And we have uh, we produce eggs and sperm. They then are reunited, and this leads to the growth of another human being. And it's quite different for the fungi. Uh, the most advanced kinds, or thought of as advanced, though I, I hate using these words. Uh, other kinds called basidiomycetes, they're the ones that make what you see as a mushroom, uh, you know, the classic okay, mushroom. Okay, so is that the, the, so is some part of the mushroom chitin there? Is that right? The whole thing is made up. That entire beautiful, incredibly complex structure is made up of the little hyphae all meshing around each other. So uh, you get them all entwining to, to build the... Uh, stalk and the gills and the, and the little cap. And because it does seem like there's different tissue in a mushroom. There's a stalk, I could say, and oh, there's yeah. a gill and so forth. But it's all one organism that just is forming different structures? All well, yeah, and, and uh, it's just these hyphae, these incredibly little tiny hair-like 
structures wrapped in cotton uh, that all enfold around one another and create these incredibly complex, beautiful structures. But what I was going to say there that makes them very different to animals is uh, in this sort of fairly advanced group, the Bicidiomycetes, you have a state called the dicarion. That means there's a nucleus from mum, there's a nucleus from dad, but they never actually fuse. And so the organism has these two nuclei always there uh, in the hyphae and every time it wants to grow longer it has to make a new cell wall and grow another you know a few centimeters into the ground um, it has to form this incredibly complicated little like a little elbow or a little arm called the clamp connection so that one nucleus f can piggyback around the other and the new cell or not really a cell but the new bit of the hypha ends up with one nucleus from mum and one nucleus from dad and it's only at the very end of this process when the mushroom or the fruiting body comes up that at the end of the gills we have the actual little spores each of the spores has a nucleus either from mum or from dad and when they germinate they form what is called the monocarion and that is a hyphae a hypha that has only the one nucleus and that must find a partner and fuse together with it. So that's a, a haploid number of. Uh, that's a haploid state. Meets another. Meets another one. Spore they one. fuse together, and you get a new uh, what is called a mycelium. So when you have all the hyphae growing together in a in an organised body, you have this thing called a mycelium. These fungus they're like animals. They're diploid. Is that right? With well, no, I think this is, this is one of the defining reasons why they're not animals. That, uh, though in these very advanced ones, you do get these two nuclei. The nuclei never actually fuse together, so it never becomes truly diploid. And uh, that's why it's called uh, dicaryotic. Um, in the old days of early microscopists, uh, they noticed some cells had uh, like a little nut inside, it looked like a little hazelnut, that was the nucleus and that's where the word uh, carry-on uh, comes from, meaning uh, eukaryotes are the things that have, have the nut and the prokaryotes have no nut, uh, which is actually the nucleus. So when you have a, a dicaryon, you have uh, two nuts, <laughs> or actually two, two nuclei that, that never actually become one. So the, it's the identities of the two parents remain in the one organism, but as separate things. That's fascinating. I didn't isn't know where it, the, the carry-on came from, or the eukaryotic or prokaryotic. I knew those names, but didn't know where they were, came from. And I might say mycelium can be massive, so simply because they're under the ground and we don't really see them, we only see the fruiting body. That's the tiniest part, really. So the mycelium can uh, go under the road, it can connect all the trees in a forest, for example, in these situations. That sounds huge. It's one connected organism, essentially. One massive organism, yeah. And uh, I think the world record there is the, uh, well, you know, our society is obsessed with what's the biggest. So a few years ago, some people worked out that this, uh, it's actually a pathogen, this honey fungus, Armillaria, was the world's biggest organism. Uh, they did a genetic analysis of the hyphae, uh, Armillaria hyphae in this particular area and found that this 
massive, well, creature, I like to think of it as, uh, kind of under the ground. The creature under the ground. You got it. Uh, Amalaria. Amalaria. Not uh, related uh, to um, malaria. Amalaria. Amalaria. Yeah. yeah, not related to malaria. No, okay. Just a fungus. Uh, you've probably seen it. It's actually very bad for trees and it kills them, unfortunately, but uh, it has a quite a bright yellow uh, fruiting body which will appear but you got to remember under the soil that could go for miles so they worked out uh, that this particular beast this particular armillaria under the soil probably weighed about uh, 10,000 kilograms Goodness. and it went for 15 hectares and it uh, was probably uh, that's not mucking around is it? 1500 years old wow so it, uh, it's been there a long time it's been there a long time that was Tim, don't call me Toadstool Baines, talking fungus with Dr. Virginia Shepherd from the Department of Biophysics at the University of New South Wales. Coming up, cats and drugs don't mix. Hello, I'm Max Planck, and I'm a famous physicist. You might know me from such famous scientific discoveries as the black body radiation formula. If there's one thing that's constant in my life, it's discovery. The National Science Show. Is that okay? Very good. Thanks, Max. Can I go now? Sure can. Okay. And now, Gina with a story about cats, drugs, and rock and roll. Though, if not rock and roll, at least disgruntled academics, which is pretty close. I've got a piece from last week's Nature here that I'm not quite sure what I think about, uh, about this piece, so I'll tell you about it and see what you think. A researcher is to turn his back on controversial research into the impact of amphetamines on cats in the face of opposition from individuals and animal rights groups. Michael Padell, a vet at Ohio State University, OSU in Columbus, will no longer lead its study of the interaction between consumption of methamphetamine, better known as speed, and the impact of feline immunodeficiency virus on cats' brains and immune systems. Padel's study had previously been the target of lawsuits and, according to university officials, he has been subjected to threatening phone calls and emails from opponents of the work. He says that he has now accepted a, quote, better opportunity elsewhere and is leaving the OSU. Padel cites the protests as a factor in his decision but adds that he didn't win the backing he wanted from the OSU. We couldn't come to an agreement on all aspects of my career and how I should be supported, he says. University officials say that the OSU beefed up its security to protect Patel's work, which is supported by a $1.7 million grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, part of the National Institutes of Health in America. Animal rights groups that opposed the research, including a local organisation Protect Our Earth's Treasures, or POET, say they will carry on opposing the work if it continues under new leadership. The first results from the project, published last month, show that methamphetamine drastically increases replication of the virus in cat nerve cells. Padel says this finding vindicates the approach taken by the experiment, which was designed to explore the links between human drug use and susceptibility to HIV. Supporters of biomedical research on animals fear that Padel's departure will compromise other projects. He isn't the first and will not be the last to abandon research in the face of opposition, says Frankie Troll, president of the Foundation for Biomedical Research, which lobbies against tougher regulation of animal research. But Padel does not concede that the circumstances of his departure will encourage the harassment of researchers. 
OSU officials will decide shortly whether the project, which was due to run until 2005, will continue under new leadership. On the other hand, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, a group that supports tighter controls on animal experiments, is suing the NIH for allegedly failing to provide information about the experiment as required by the Freedom of Information Act. And I think this is one we're going to be following up in the future. Now, you can't possibly expect something like that to pass without a good old venting of opinion. So, Tim, what do you reckon? Animal experiments, good, bad, what do you reckon? Well, I, this is it. Uh, there's no sort of black and white here. I mean, there's black, all ex animal experimentation is, is good and we can go ahead and do whatever. And there's white where nothing should be allowed and we should not experiment on animals in principle or in practice. But realistically, it's all a huge grey area. Um, and your, your position on it, whatever you take, will be opposed by someone who uh, wants to do ex animal experimentation on some level or some people who don't want it done at all. I, I guess the question I had um, on on this on this particular um, uh, story, I think my my main question was, what were the grounds of objection? I mean, was it just we shouldn't be doing nasty things to cute little kittens? A, a position for which I have some sympathy, being <laughs> cat person, um, or or was it some sort of uh, was the problem? No, this research isn't showing what. Your say, what you say it's showing so it's unnecessary or it's the wrong model or it's a particularly dis distasteful type of research. I, I guess I, I want to know a bit more about Is it without scientific value or, or not sufficient mm. scientific value to warrant these experiments on cats? Because I know when we were talking about this Sorry, Chris, I can see you waving your hand it's right. over here. Well, we, away. we were chatting about this last week when Branwen was here and, and this is kind of her field. The, the first thing she said was, oh, cat model? as if to say, well, why would they be running the research on this type of model anyway? So maybe maybe there is a, a, a point there. Well, there is a, the, the closer you get to humans in terms of choice of your model mammal, uh, sort of more dangerously close you get to, um, I don't know, ethical problems. Yeah, 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 get some chimps in there, that's what I reckon. Mm, nice one, Chris. Yes. Um, you're going to make enemies that, real fast. Oh, I was kidding. There. Yeah, Chris had his <coughs> ironic face on there, but for those of you who, who yes. couldn't see in the radio studio. Yeah. But quite seriously, I, I think there are a, a number of different lines to be drawn in the sand here. One line is, you know, we're talking about cute, fluffy cats. Everyone loves a cat. Um, if we were talking about cockroaches, would, would that be a problem? You know, we, we, I want to do some research on cockroaches. Yeah, kill the bastards. You know, get as many as you like. Here's a whole bucket load. If we're, if we're talking about animals that aren't seen to be terribly cute or terribly nice or terribly, you know, useful things to have around, is that all right? Well, in a, in a way, cockroach research would be even less patronising in a way because if you're doing research into cockroaches, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who are just desperately fascinated by them, but a lot of the research is going to be into the cockroach as a cockroach to try and figure out the best way to kill them, basically. And, and you could almost argue that that's less patronising and less exploitative than studying it for what it can, for what use we can make of it. If you know what I mean? Like instead of using a cat mm. model to study human health, you're studying a cockroach as an entity in itself. So cockroaches, dolphins in tanks trying to understand dolphin language, that kind of thing, as opposed to getting kitties in cages and whacking them full of drugs to see whether or not they're going to help us, you know, yeah. get rid of AIDS. Well, that's, that's 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 you're saying that in a rather sensationalist way. I of mean, course, I agree. this is a that's sensational program. <laughs> that's right. But Tabloid radio. You were talking about drawing lines. I mean, 
where do you say is the the greater use for these these cats? If you've got the something other that's going to kill the entire human race or a cat, I've got to go for the something that might solve you know diseases problems for the entire human race. Never let it be said that on this show we don't go for the big issues. <laughs> That's it for another discovery. I'm Chris Stewart, and joining me in the Purple Velvet Lounge of the 2SER Studios in Sydney were panel goddess Gina Satori and our beloved producer Tim Baines. Discovery is broadcast nationally across this wide brown land by the CBAA and their orbiting galvanised garbage bin full of electronic wizard bangery, Comrade Sat. You can join us for more sciencey goodness same time next week. But that's it for now, so bye. PM 